Hello, free thinkers, and welcome to the first ever episode of Post Woke, the New York City based podcast where we learn intellectual self defense. I'm your host, Mickey Z, and I'm really excited to have you tuning in. Like every podcaster, of course, I would love for you to subscribe, to rate and review, five stars please, and spread the word near and far. And be sure to check the show notes to learn how to subscribe to my Substack, where you'll get all of my podcasts, my writing, plus special bonus content for subscribers only. And it, also in the show notes, you'll find my email address, postwoke at protonmail.com. I welcome your sincere feedback and suggestions. For episode number one, we have two excellent guests, Allison Gray and Bernie Cullinan, aka Uncle Butch. But before I introduce them to you, I'd like to share my rant of the week right after this short break. You're back with Mickey Z and the Post Woke podcast. I'm going to begin this week's rant of the week by talking about the renowned left-wing hero Noam Chomsky. He once said, quote, the picture of the world that's presented to the public has only the remotest relation to reality. The truth of the matter is buried under edifice after edifice of lies upon lies, close quote. Far more recently, Chomsky said this, about the so-called unvaccinated. Quote, they should have the decency to remove themselves from the community. If they refuse to do that, measures have to be taken, close quote. He claimed the U.S. government must establish conventions to deal with such killers, foolishly equating them to someone who refuses to stop at red lights while driving. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you arguably the most important intellectual alive today as the New York Times once called him. Now, many years ago, Chomsky helped introduce me to the realm of intellectual self-defense, along with Guy Debord and the Situationists and others. Chomsky and I exchanged real letters in the pre-internet days of yore. I met him at a lecture he gave on linguistics and cognitive science, and we became friends. I interviewed him, and later I consoled him when his wife passed away. Eventually, I drifted from him. I forged my own path and found myself disagreeing with him more and more, but I never imagined him as a fascist. After all, this is a man who defended the right of everyone, including Holocaust deniers, to speak their minds. I mean, he wrote, he co-wrote the damn book on recognizing media manipulation. About the mission of the corporate media, Chomsky once wrote, quote, you've got to keep them pretty scared because unless they're properly scared and frightened of all things, all kinds of devils that are going to destroy them from the outside or inside or somewhere, they may start to think, which is a very dangerous thing, close quote. With ideas like this in mind, you'd imagine that good old gnome might be mighty skeptical of the relentless corporate media reports about COVID-19, especially considering how many billions of dollars companies like Pfizer spend to allegedly sponsor the news. I ask you to juxtapose slogans like stop the spread and flatten the curve, and we're all in this together with Chomsky's own words. Quote, the point of public relations slogans like support our troops is that they don't mean anything. That's the whole point of good propaganda. 
You want to create a slogan that nobody's going to be against. Everyone's going to be for it because no one knows what it means because it doesn't mean anything, close quote. Yet somehow the respected leftist has forgotten all his own lessons. Somehow the respected anarchist has embraced fake news and yes, fascism. About the unvaccinated, he also recently stated, quote, if it ever reaches the point where they are severely endangering people, then you have to do something about it, close quote. When asked to explain the logistics of this stance, without a shred of science to back it up, I might add, he added, how can we get food to them? Well, that's actually their problem. He supposed that the state must secure their survival just as you do with people in jail. Now, no matter where you stand on the jab, surely you recognize that what the new left icon is advocating are totalitarian tactics. Now, also for the record, he made a moronic comparison recently to the current situation of the current situation to smallpox. Even if you swallow the COVID narrative whole cloth, I hope you recognize that the main reason smallpox was eradicated was because it lacked an animal reservoir. SARS-CoV-2, like all respiratory viruses, has an animal reservoir and thus cannot be tackled like, say, smallpox or polio. Too bad the most important intellectual alive today is woefully ignorant on this and other pandemic-related facts. All this said, let me be clear, this pathetic display does not negate all of Chomsky's earlier work, at least not in my mind. Personally speaking, it doesn't negate his mentorship. If anything, it's quite helpful as a lesson in intellectual self-defense. The great Noam Chomsky has become nothing more than a tragic cautionary tale. And if he can be so easily manipulated by propaganda, what makes any of us imagine that we are immune? Stay vigilant, my friends, and remember to keep your guard up at all times. We'll be back really soon with Allison Gray. And we're back with Allison Gray. She's a singer, a writer, and a chaos magician. And that's just for starters. And she's coming to us from her private studio in an undisclosed location. <laughs> So, Allison, how does it feel to be the first ever guest on the first ever episode of Post Woke? It is a profound honor. I am smiling from ear to ear and I'm giddy with excitement. Oh, I'm happy to hear that because um, for the listeners, Allison and I met nearly nine years ago Oof. thanks to the world of activism and the world of wokeness. So it's, there's something very appropriate considering, considering our journey um, to be on a, a podcast called Post Woke. I mean, we literally met at an activist event, an animal rights event, in fact. Do you remember that? Yeah, and we used to like go to activist events as our way of like hanging out and bonding with each other. <laughs> and now we bond over how much we hate all of those same. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we did the marches, the signs, the chants, the color-coded profile pictures, the, oh. the hashtags, all of it. But let me let I'm me cringing so hard. <laughs> I hope a lot of people are cringing when, when they hear this. But just just to um the to update people. You and I are going to do a much longer interview very soon, possibly the next episode. So this is just a small sampling of, of our, our conversation. And I want people to know that 
the information about how to find out more about you will be in the show notes because you, as I said, singer, writer, chaos magician, to be more um, detailed. I know also know you as a poet, a playwright, a novelist, an essayist, a painter, <laughs> a spoken word performer, and even a DMT jester. So, um, <laughs> so if people, if any of that provokes interest in people, and plus this conversation, um, the information will be in the show notes. But what I want to focus on today, sort of introducing this idea of intellectual self-defense, is mm -hmm. how um, you can lose that when you enter into the realm of activism and how it feels when you distance yourself and look at activism from a detached position and see it for what it really is. So um, would you want to share any thoughts about your journey in terms of what got you into activism and what got you out of activism? Oh, oh, I have so much to say. Well, in my case, um, I, I'm torn about mentioning this because I don't want people to hear my background and say, oh, well, I don't relate to that at all. So none of her analysis applies to me. But for disclosure's sake, um, I was born and raised in a fundamentalist church and I, I was even the goddaughter of the pastor. So as you might imagine, there was a lot of pressure on me um, to adhere to the Bible and practice a very specific strain of Christianity. And this really, really shaped my way of being and my way of uh, engaging with ideas. And so even after I left the church at 16, um, I didn't, I didn't know what cult hopping was. I didn't know that once your brain is kind of formatted to think in black and white terms and feel like it's us versus them and, you know, have all of these cultic characteristics, I didn't realize you could just repeat that same cycle in a different context and not even know it. And so I jumped right into animal rights and vegetarianism, which turned into veganism um, immediately upon leaving the church. Didn't even realize that I was behaving like a religious extremist, but in a non-religious context. And then after... Um, I left veganism, then it was radical feminism. And I remember well. Yeah. And, and I mean, we've been along with each other on this wild ride. So um, if it, the funny thing is, it's like I, I didn't figure out that my childhood, like church conditioning, might have had anything to do with why I was so drawn to like groups and movements that were really purpose driven and mission driven. And I never questioned it until um, radical feminism's tenets started kind of falling apart for me. And it, you know, once I really dive deep on questioning that, it it expanded into a greater questioning of um, what it means to have an ideology and the consequences of identifying with ideas. And so that kind of spun into this whole philosophy that I have now, which I call unminding. Um, and when I say unminding, I mean the process of, of sort of undoing your social conditioning and questioning all of your beliefs as, as as deep to the root as you can go until you essentially free yourself from the pitfalls of ideological identification and you're able to find the self that precedes ideology and groups and labels. And so now I describe myself as like, kind of not having any ideologies. I, I don't label myself anything. Same my here. politics, yeah, my politics are my politics. My beliefs are my beliefs. So 
in avoiding labels, um, I, I feel like it holds me accountable for my beliefs. Um, so I don't have an echo chamber to back me up when I say things anymore. And so that, that right there, uh, makes it so that I have no choice but to constantly check in with my beliefs because it's not like I have a comfort zone to return to where everyone's going to parrot the same things. So, um, you know, choosing the kind of lone wolf path in, in this world where everyone's like choosing teams and like spewing hatred across the divide. Um, it's, it's a lonely path, but a worthwhile one. If you really want to know who you are. It sounds like, it, it sounds like, like a form of intellectual self-defense. I mean, I, I mean, I've known you long enough to remember when the unminding concept came through and it was, mm. it definitely resonated with me and it had a huge impact on me. And um, we've had conversations about how, when you're in ideological groups, w whatever it might be it, it, on any, any part of the political spectrum, we're not just folk, we happen to be on what would be considered the left, but this isn't just about the left. If you're part of any ideological group, you tend to bond with the people in the group and you mistakenly consider them to be close friends. Mm. The same way when you, you come at it from the church perspective, if you leave the church or if you leave veganism or if you leave what any type of um, ideology or as you called it, cultic mindset, the people, um, they're not your friends anymore. They're not, they're not um, open-minded enough to say, oh, every, you know, she's still cool. I, we just don't agree on this. And I think that's a, a, a powerful reminder to people. And I think it's also a powerful um, form of control where people fear that loneliness that you mentioned, or they fear that aloneness. So they'll stay in a group, even if they're uncomfortable with what the group's talking about. So I know you, the work you do and what, I'm, what I've been trying to do in my writing and now going to do in the podcast is to encourage people to ask these questions even when they're difficult and when the answers seem scary because there's nothing as liberating and powerful as that moment when you, like, as you described it where you let go of the labels and you're just thinking for yourself and you're open to all input and evidence where you're not, you're not you're not analyzing what's happening in the world from a particular lens. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up the phrase thinking for yourself, because that is what we are always attempting to do. But the funny thing is about that phrase, I don't think that people who aren't thinking for themselves think that they're not thinking for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so when we say things like that, I don't think it registers with them as having anything to do with them. Like, like how I mentioned earlier that I was raised in a fundamentalist setting when people hear that, and then they hear my resume of cults that I was in, um, they think, oh, well, you're just particularly prone to cults because you were raised in one, but that has nothing to do with me because I, you know, I don't have an unhealthy relationship with my ideology. But um, that's why I keep stressing to people, it really could be anyone. It doesn't matter if you were raised in a very black and white setting like I was or not, because the thing about... Um, groupthink and cultism and and ideological identification and all of these issues uh, that we're seeing on the global stage today is that it appeals to basic human nature, regardless of 
how you grew up, you're human and humans want to belong and humans have ego traps. We really want to be right. We really want to be validated. We really want to be reassured. And, you know, there's, there's just these very basic needs for community that then get, um, either exploited actively by people with agendas like we're seeing big pharma do and you know just as one example or people end up in these um very black and white thinking groups uh and it's not because anyone in particular has an agenda it's just because they're genuinely driven to create a better world but they're misguided about how that is going to work or how it's going to look and um and there is this innocence um, a lot of the time where people don't even realize that, uh, how do I say this? Like you mentioned all of your friends kind of disappearing once you s- turn around and question the beliefs that you used to share. I don't think most people have even pondered what does it mean to have a friend? Because I know growing up in my church and then going from group to group, it's embarrassing to say this, but I never learned what a genuine friend was. I thought a friend was just someone who believed all the same things you believed. And I took that so deeply for granted until I lost all of my so-called friends in the radical feminist world after I turned around and said, wait, this isn't making sense to me anymore. And it, it was only after that loss of my entire social group in one fell swoop that I was able to stop and reflect and ask myself, well, what is friendship and why is it important to me and what does friendship look like what does it feel like and then from there i was able to consciously engage with my social life and consciously rebuild my social life from scratch and now i can say i enjoy bountiful beautiful connections with people who love me for me and not for me just parroting their beliefs back to them and um hopefully they feel the same way about me that i see the beauty of them as an individual rather than seeking validation and, and an echo chamber from them. That, that's a powerful lesson be, uh, and message because we are herded into these hive minds on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and so on. And we do tend to call friends, like literally Facebook friends, of mm. people who see the same news feed as us. And therefore, when you diverge from that news feed, it provokes anger from them. And as you said, saying to that person, you're not thinking for yourself. And I've had a catchphrase, rediscover the subversive pleasure of thinking for yourself, which I, is something that I have been um, gently phasing out. And I, I like to, to um, my, my version of unminding is to call it intellectual self-defense. You just say that we could always, we could always be better at challenging whatever narrative is coming at us. And to do it from this perspective, this very human personal perspective that you're bringing up here, talking about the importance of real, genuine, authentic, close friendships is something that everyone can relate to. And everyone is craving right now because as you've hinted at, and I'm saying it now, is plenty of people are probably in friendships and relationships in which they disagree strongly with other people, but are afraid to, to speak out because the price you pay for being different in today's society. And what I would love to do, because I'm looking at the uh, timer here, I'd love to do is, is really pick up on this in a longer um, interview with you. Because yeah. I know that you, you've done so much research 
when it comes to the cultic mindset, literally cultic mindset, not mm. using it as a, a hyperbole or just an, a, an adjective. And um, it's something that I've, I've been to meetings with you to learn about it. And I feel like um, it just fits in so perfectly with the intellectual self-defense. And I also do want listeners to learn more about the, the award-winning play you wrote, the song that you wrote that's coming out soon, and all the other magical stuff that you're doing <laughs> that we, as I'm sitting here, we, we, I feel like we just started talking and I think we're already at 14 minutes. So I'm saying to myself, let's, let's, uh, let's keep this as an introduction and tell people, I promise Allison will be back really soon. And we're going to talk 30, 40, maybe more minutes and hash all this out. And you can reach out on email. It'll be in the show notes. If there's other stuff you want she and I to talk about, but I just want to say thank you to Allison for giving us this little snapshot and introduction to you, to what you do. And I hope it inspires people to be very interested to hear a lot more from you in a longer interview. Thank you so much for having me on. This is so exciting. And I'm already looking forward to picking up where we left off with the caveat that our conversations typically <laughs> last like three hours. Yes. So I'm curious to hear how you think we'll make it 40 minutes. I think I think this is going to have to be a multi-part um, ongoing. If, if <laughs> you'd saga. be kind enough to come back on a regular basis, that's a it's trilogy. That, yes. But um, <laughs> thank you so much. And um Folks, if you're interested in Allison, the information about her will be in the show notes. And we'll be back soon. Bye. We're here with Bernie Cullinan, a.k.a. Uncle Butch, because he is literally my uncle. And since I was a kid, me and all my cousins called him Uncle Butch, and I still call him Uncle Butch. So, Uncle Butch, with the notification sounds in the background there, how does it feel to be on my first ever podcast? First of all, Mickey Z, I want to thank you for having me on your first podcast. I'm You're most truly welcome. honored to be here with you. Fantastic. Um, now, this is going to be just a small sampling because you and I talk all the time, and I know our conversations are interesting and worth recording. But for the purposes of the first episode, we're going to just give a little sampling of an anecdote you once told me that I feel fits in well with this concept of intellectual self-defense. And it goes way back to the 1960 election cycle with none other than Richard Nixon running against JFK. And I'm gonna let you take it away from here to tell me about a time you sorta got swept up into a crowd and had to, had to use your own, how to perform your own version of intellectual self-defense. Okay. Um... I, I, you know, I'm Mickey, I'm not sure where I got my political druthers from uh, because my family wasn't really involved in politics at all. The only time my father would get involved was when he needed to go to his congressman around the corner because we were being threatened to be evicted. Uh, so, but I do know that I liked Richard Nixon and I have no idea why I liked him and I have no idea why I didn't like the Democrat who was... John F. Kennedy. Um, in retrospect, years later, I think maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I was wrong about choosing the wrong guy. I guess I was wrong about choosing the guy. Anyway, um, I was working on 59th Street on uh, Madison Avenue at a grocery store, and I heard that there was a rally on the west on the west side at the convention center, which was later named the Javits Center. 
and the convention center was within walking distance. So I walked over to, to uh, 8th Avenue and 59th Street, and it was a mob of people there. And there was no way for me to get in. They had a big television screen outside, and we could watch it. Uh, and I waited, and then Nixon got on, and, and the, the normal political speeches were there. And, uh, you know, I in, enjoyed it, even though I couldn't be inside. So, okay. go ahead. No, I said, okay. Okay. After a certain amount of time, um, it was over. It was about 45 minutes, and we were. I was walking back home. And at the time, I lived on the west side of Manhattan, which was about uh, maybe 10 blocks away from the convention center. So I decided not to take a subway or a bus, just to take, just to walk. And I started walking from the convention center down 59th Street and 8th Avenue to actually to 7th Avenue. And uh, somebody then suddenly, there was a whole group of people there with uh, sort of posters and signs and, uh, you know, things like that. And they, somebody shoved the end of a pole in my hand that had Nixon for president. And I just held on to it, grabbed it because it was in my hand now. And if I dropped it, the other guy would have had problems. So I was sort of coerced into holding this pole. So we walked down 59th Street and 7th Avenue and went to 58th Street and 57th and all the time yelling, Nixon for president, Nixon for president, we like Dick, we like Dick, you know, <laughs> and all that. <laughs> Which in retrospect might have been kind of amusing. Yeah, you could have used a different mantra there. Yeah. Work on your anyway, but anyway, we walked down there and as I, you know, got down, we, we went to the east side to the wall of Astoria where Nixon was staying and we called on him to come out, but he didn't come out. Maybe he wasn't there yet back from the convention center. I don't know. But we then, the leaders of this uh, mob of people who were uh, coercing me into holding this sign, uh, we marched over to uh, Broadway on 43rd and 42nd Street. Um, and that was Kennedy headquarters. And we were then told to boo Kennedy, which we did. So we booed Kennedy and we yelled and screamed, oh, you're no good, you're no good and all that. And then we marched back to the Waldorf Astoria and this time Nixon was there and he came out on his balcony on the, from the third floor and we could see him and he waved to us and we waved back and we screamed his name and we, oh, we love you. We love you. We love you. You're wonderful, Nixon. Uh, we love you and all that. And and at, at some point, he went back in and for all intents and purposes, the rally was over. Okay. okay so so um, the, somebody came and got the, the, the posters and rolled them up and uh, the signs and all that. And uh, I didn't have that far to walk because... I was sitting, standing there on 49th Street and Lexington Avenue where the uh, Waldorf Astoria was, and I just walked to the west side, and I was home. But as I began to walk to the west side, I realized, wow, I had a sore throat from all that yelling. And I, I said, and it suddenly it dawned on me. I said, what the hell was I doing? You know, it felt like I was coerced into doing this thing. I felt like uh truly i was part of a mob 
And I didn't like being part of a mob, you know, especially when I woke up the next day with a sore throat and had to go to work anyway. Wow. That was that was annoying. And ever since then, I've been very careful not to get uh, coerced into becoming part of a, a mob. And they're very good at doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I love that you're using the word coerced because it brings that that word is just as applicable today, if not more. When you think about the the modern version of a mob might be a group of people piling on virtually on Twitter. But there is a coercion there. There is a sense of telling you who to boo. In your case, it was JFK, who to cheer. In that case, it was Nixon. And this just literally handing you a sign, which is the equivalent of saying to you, this is what you believe. Like whatever was written on that sign, that person was just imposing that upon you. And it's there is something attractive about being part of a group, a tribe, uh, a community. And that's what kind of draws you in. But the tactics are not on. They're not unlike what a cult would use in the sense of like. Uh, black and white thinking, you know, one side there's only only good and bad. There is no nuance or um, telling you what to say or be. If if you would have said, "Hey, I don't want this sign," they might, like you said, you might he might have given you a hard time, and you then you'd have to deal with this sense of rejection. So, I the reason why I asked you to tell that story was because it made an impression when you first told it to me. And it's something that I think all of us should be striving for in the sense that it's fine if you want to support a particular ideology or, or belief or so on. But it's, it's crucial to constantly reevaluate um, why why you think this, if you still think it. And if, to, again, to bring back the word, if you feel coerced, because if you're being coerced, obviously that's not the same as consent. That's not the same as intellectual freedom. So I I, a, I applaud you for doing that, and B, I wanted, I really wanted you to share this story as as a way of how how easy it is to get sucked in, and now more than ever online. And ever since then, I've been very careful about, and I, you know, and I got to say, I didn't necessarily blame Nixon. It was all the little guys, the the handlers, and. The, uh, the middle managers and stuff who handled rallies and do all that kind of stuff. Those are the ones, those are the guys that were instrumental in making me feel part of the mob. Yeah. And I, I didn't like the feeling of being part of a mob. That really bothered me afterwards. Well, good for you because a lot of people do. And, I, and the concept of marching with signs in your hand is familiar with me because decades later after your experience, I was doing it voluntarily in terms of um, quote unquote activism. And I did go to plenty of rallies where the organizers would warn people in advance, don't worry, don't bring signs, we have signs. And it always kind of bugged me, but it never fully hit me until I, I took a whole, whole more holistic view that like, no, if I choose to bring a sign, I'm going to make my own because I have my own opinion. I don't need to, an organizer to tell me, okay, you hold this sign as if I'm somehow going to be aligned with everything that person chose. So it, it is a, it, it's a very slippery slope. There's nothing wrong with community and, and, and being passionate about what you believe in, but it's unfortunate that the people organize, as you said, um, take advantage of that to to turn it into something coercive. So um, the goal of this podcast is going to be to challenge that. And that's uh, that's why I wanted to introduce listeners to my Uncle Butch and for you to share that story. So I, I appreciate you, you coming here. And, and um, 
I would like to invite you now to come back to do a full-length interview on a show very soon. Okay. Let me just add one more thing. Of course. Uh, at the time, I was 17 years old, and uh, they hadn't passed uh, the amendment to the Constitution, which allowed 18-year-olds to, to uh, vote. So I was far away from voting. There was no way I could vote for Nixon. But for some reason, I was there carrying a pole yelling his name out. <laughs> And, and and excoriating the the his opponent, even though I really didn't know much about him. Yeah, and well, that makes it all the more impressive that you were thinking for yourself at seventeen, because that's that's a time of intense peer pressure and a desire to fit in. And rallies and protests and and so on are places where people go in order to fit in, and unfortunately, people take advantage of that. So. I, I definitely want to explore topics like this more with you. And um, I think we're going to do that on a future episode. Would you agree to that? Oh, sure. I'll be right. glad to do it. So fantastic. Everyone, this is Uncle Butch. You're going to see see and hear plenty of him on Post Woke. And uh, I just want to say thank you for being here. We'll talk it's soon. A, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, all right. That does it for episode number one of Post Woke. I want to thank you all for tuning in. And I did mention when I was interviewing Allison that I would put stuff in the quote-unquote show notes. I'm not sure how to do that yet. I will get up to speed on it. So I want to say here, to learn more about Allison Gray, the best, easiest step is to go to her Instagram where you'll find the links to her other projects related to her music and musings. So the Instagram is allison.gray. And let me spell that out for you. It's A-L-I-C-E-N dot G-R-E-Y. So please check her out. And she will be back on the show very soon. And in other housekeeping stuff, I'm going to ask you again to rate and review um, Post Woke wherever you get your uh podcasts and to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And in particular, I would love for you to come to my Substack and subscribe there. That is mickeyz.substack.com, M-I-C-K-E-Y-Z.substack.com. And there you can become a, an email subscriber and you will get an email every single time I post an article or a podcast. But I would just love it and so appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you get um, to support this project, which is so crucial that your help is so crucial. And as I, right now, one of the perks of being a paid subscriber is you'll be able to comment on articles and podcasts. Um, but as time passes, I'm going to work out some premium content that is exclusive for, exclusively for those of you who pay on uh, Substack to support Post Woke. So, and why would you want to do that? That's, I would say it's because you're a free agent, because you are post-woke and you're interested in a show in which formats will be subverted, rules broken, foundations rocked, and everything will be questioned. So I ask you to join us to help shift the narratives. And in the meantime, remember to keep your guard up.